Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for October 31st, 2021. Happy Halloween to everyone. I just got in from doing a candy shift uh, for most of the 6 o'clock hour, but um, tagged out so I could make it on to the Kudzu Vine. Welcome, everybody. Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome to the show, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Glad to have you all both on. Big show tonight. Um, On Tuesday, the New Jersey and the Virginia elections, as well as uh, many mayoral elections around the country, are being held. And so uh, we're going to have one of our longtime guests who's always informing us about Virginia elections. Lowell Feld of Blue Virginia on the show here in about 20 minutes. Um, He'll run down all three of those elections as well as um, probably talk a little redistricting, possibly uh, assuming how we get through those other elections. And, of course, it seems like the Virginia governor's race has become a bellwether for politics in all of America, rightly or wrongly. Um, so we'll probably, you know, really discuss that race at length. Um, but until then, we got some topics to talk about. And the first one's kind of an extension of our uh, topic from last week. Uh, Catherine, Tim, and I, we all kind of broke down um, Truth Social and how we thought it might go. And it appears we may have been too bullish on um, Truth Social's chances of getting off the ground as far as a social media app because i guess it was even on monday right after we the next day after we had the show come to find out that they had it's plagiarism is not the appropriate word but in some way copied the source coding uh for the app and they had a 30-day cease and desist letter basically change your coding to something unique and not proprietary or else we will sue you. Um, so if they cannot rebuild the architecture in 30 days, they really can't go live with this, can they, Catherine? No, they can't. And then they're also running into problems with the SEC. So they're they're not in very good shape there. Yes. Um, I guess, you know, Trump doesn't mind being sued, so – could it be possible they just go ahead and he gets sued? What do you think, Tim? Well, yeah, well, it, gee, it wouldn't be the first time he got sued. Now, <laughs> would it? Uh, probably wouldn't even be the first time this week he got sued. <laughs> I mean, every time you turn around, my goodness, uh, something like this is happening to him. You know what I was wondering, though, guys, while this was going on? Has he been raising money off of this bill? And if he has and it don't get off the ground, what's he going to do with the money? Anybody well, thought about I, that? And we'll, I think we'll get into that in just a second with the finances. Um, 
But but it is interesting. I think they have to back off. They can't go live with this source coding because it would be a, a pretty open and shut case um, if they've just copied some proprietary code. Um, and I want to tell, for the record, on the 24th of October, we were all three apparently too bullish on Donald Trump's chances of getting something off the ground on his business acumen. Um, so, you know, y'all can't say we're too harsh <laughs> on him because here's a chance. We tried to give him credit, and he didn't deliver. Um, so I want to mark that up. Now, talking about the money, I guess there's two things here. Um, one, if he got kind of like investors getting a percentage of the company, and in particular the people that invested in the stock of the, I guess, parent company, those folks he might have to say, like, if I promised you a product, and he didn't deliver, it seems like he would possibly owe those folks money, and they might have to take him to court because that seems to be how things work with him. Uh, he doesn't pay his bills, and he gets taken to court. Now, as far as the people, like a congressman from Georgia's – or congresswoman from Georgia's 14th district, if you saw Trump social and said, wow, look at those gains, and you invested in it after the peak, and then – Trump social loses most or even all of its value because it cannot get off the ground, then you are out all of your money. Um, and I'm not making that up <laughs> hypothetically. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, apparently, she didn't get in on the ground floor. She saw what was happening. I don't know if she saw some CNBC report or some other stock. But she got word that it was, you know, really going up. I don't know exactly what share price she got it at, but it sounds like she got it closer to what was that $65 peak than she would have got it at the initial entry price. And she lost somewhere between they're projecting fifteen and $50,000. And I don't know how many shares she bought. No, um, she, didn't, but she didn't lose that. That's how much she invested. She invested. Well, so she's got that much at risk. Um, right. So, Catherine, I mean, what does this tell us about Margaret Taylor Greene, you think, of this investment in Trump's social? Well, you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen with this. Uh, one of the others, I don't know if you're going to mention this later, but the FEC, the SEC is investigating all this because um, apparently they were Trump and um, this other, you know, SPAC were discussing this merger uh, as far back as March of 2020, or I'm sorry, 2021. But they went public in September, and there's rules about not having any kind of um, plans or um, agreements uh, in place before going public. So that could cause problems for this whole, um, this whole merger. Um, but, you know, if, if she thought that that was a, a worthy risk, you know, a lot of people take risks in the stock market and um, she didn't break any laws by what she did. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it seems like a foolhardy uh, investment from my perspective, but maybe she thinks it's going to take off and, 
you know. No one ever said she was, you know, a genius. Yes. Now, Tim, um, I sent this, I uh, think, to you right off. I may have sent it to you and Catherine both, but I know I may have sent it to you in another capacity. Um, what's your take on Marjorie Taylor Greene's um, bullish stock investment into tr- Truth Social? Well, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on investments of this type, of course, but I was wondering why it seems like somebody that followed the stock market closely would jump in uh, on the ground floor, as Catherine yeah. mentioned, as the stock was beginning to go up. Why wait until it peaked uh, and then do it? Uh, because the risk would be so much greater, plus you would be, I'm, I'm sure, paying a lot more to get in uh, for your shares. Um, and so I have to wonder about the business acumen of someone who would do that if they're just not accustomed to following the market that closely or what was going on. I wonder how many others might have done that. And I wonder how many, shall we say, well-known people would have made an investment like that to, shall we say, please Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, that that That's just a thought as well. I have no idea. And uh, it might turn out for everybody that did invest. I don't know. This thing hasn't played out yet, but Got some strong questions uh, uh, about the way that that went down. So, yeah, I mean, I think Catherine, you're right. It wasn't unethical because uh, I think she actually she got you know no inside information at all because obviously it'd have been the worst inside information ever. I mean, compared to some of the stock trades, which we know that Richard Burr, Kelly Leffler, David Perdue, and maybe some others engaged in, where they had you know early Corona. Um, virus information, and they invested, and it was just totally unethical. This was different. She kind of got – she was late to the party. Um, but it really shows that she's this true believer, um, for good or bad. I mean, she's just this, you know, oh, if, if you know, dear leader Trump says that it must going to come through because we know he's never failed in any business before. Uh, so <laughs> – we have to invest in this thing that's just going to skyrocket. So she's this really you know, huge true believer. It also shows that, once again, she's not this you know, wonderful money manager. Um, and, of course, a lot of times the Republicans, and I think some of the polling we're seeing, some people are believing, oh, the Republicans, they're the business party. They know about business. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't know about business. We can talk about anybody else, but – she doesn't know about the stock market because this was a bad deal. I mean, if this thing flops and doesn't get off the ground, I don't know how this parent company works, but if this parent company is pretty much put all its eggs in this Trump media basket, then they may have nothing left. And if she invested $15,000, it's gone. If she invested $50,000, it's gone. Um, I understand that her construction company does pretty well, but I, I don't think you it goes, does so well that you know they can just write off fifteen and fifty thousand dollars for no good reason. Um, 
and so this is just really a, a you know a black eye to anybody that she might try to sell herself as this you know business um, woman extraordinaire. And so you know in the district, I think it's early. There are these. I think it's early to say that, David. I think we're, we have to be careful. Well, you know, it that's, it could go up we project. Uh, a little bit, and she could make a little bit of money on it and then sell it and um, not lose everything. So, I mean, I, well, I, I don't think I, it's going to go any higher after the news we heard early in the week. I'd have <laughs> well, to think it know. peaked at 65 for the time being. We, we don't know yet. So, we, I mean, we just don't know. Well, I, I'll go ahead and say this. I will, I will use what I know about stocks, and I'm in no way a stock broker, a stock trader, or anything else. But based on what I know about the issues they're having with the source code, they exploded up to $65 in an initial rush, and they're not going to go up past that amount. So she got in close to that amount. It's probably got more downside in the near future than it does upside. And I'll just make that prediction because, you know, later we're going to make predictions about some of these races. So at times yeah. we have to make predictions, and so I'm going to say that. I mean, yeah. we made predictions on it last week. We were wrong in our prediction. We said that we thought we'd get this thing a lot, so we're wrong. It's not looking as good as we made the prediction last week. Um, so that happened. But now I mentioned David Purdue. Let's see if we can get into another Georgia topic before we get Long to join us. And it came out midweek that former Georgia Senator David Purdue has taken another look at the governor's race. Um you know, this before this uh, the rally took place in Perry, Georgia, in which um, Donald Trump again went after uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. There was polling that had been conducted by a Republican firm that showed that David Perdue would do quite well against Brian Kemp, but it appeared that David Perdue was not that serious looking into that. It, it, from the outside, it didn't like that there was a Incredible chance that he would run. Apparently, word is reported by the AJC, Atlanta Journal Constitution, is that he will, uh, or he is considering it more. Now, no decision by any way has been made. Um, Tim, where do you think um, he may stand with this race? Just, just looking at it. Well, I think he's uh, apparently talked to some state. Republican leaders, and he's called a potential donor, so I think he's pretty far along in the process, even though the claim is he hasn't made a final decision yet. You know, back in February, when the talk got started about him running against, uh, you know, Warnock, uh, he quickly dispelled those rumors and said no, he was not interested at all. Uh, he didn't really strongly ever dispel this one. So in recent days, he apparently is very seriously thinking about it. And uh, if if he does uh, decide to run, that will certainly upend that race in a hurry, won't it? Yes. Catherine, um, you know, he, Tim's right. He didn't want to run for Senate. He may be looking at governor. I feel like we've talked about this in the past after that poll came out. But after, you know, knowing what we know now, 
where do you think David Perdue would stand in a primary with Brian Kemp? Well, I think a lot has to do with how vocally and visibly Trump uh, supports him. It sounds like uh, that was the one of the reports I read was that he has been he has spoken to Trump about this, and so I think he would get pretty full-throated of support from Trump, and I think that would certainly help him in the primary. Um, so I think it would, I, I mean, I think it could be a um, pretty ugly battle between the two of them with, especially if Trump's involved, cause you know, he'll get in there and, you know, do what he does so well with, you know, criticizing Kemp and, you know, all the, and, and praising Purdue. But, um, I think it could be a scorched earth campaign and it could leave whoever uh, prevails pretty damaged. Yeah. Tim, let me ask you this. Who's the biggest loser in this? Brian Kemp, if David Perdue gets in, is it Brian Kemp or is it the other candidates in the Republican primary not named Brian Kemp or David Perdue, i.e. Vernon Jones, Candace Taylor and others? The 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 biggest loser's got to be Brian Kemp. Yeah, uh, he had other he had other opponents. Yes, but we've talked about him, but none anywhere near approaching the stature of David Perdue, or possessing the resources, uh, or the ability to put together a staff or a run like this that David Perdue could probably do in a big hurry. And he is very well liked in Republican circles, and uh, most notably, he he would probably get the full-throated endorsement of Donald Trump. So it, it's basically, at least in the Republican primary, I'd say it's the governor's worst nightmare. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I definitely think Brian Kemp's a loser, but it seems like Vernon Jones, any angle he had. It has to be the anti-Kemp, the choice of the hardcore MAGAs, and he loses that completely. Um, so, so really, um, to me, the only winner in this whole thing, would, if David Perdue runs, is if Dave, is David Perdue. I mean, assuming um, he, he takes the win um, because he hurts the other candidates that are not Brian Kemp. He hurts Brian Kemp because he gives, a, I think, a more credible challenge in the primary than Vernon Jones. Now, another question. Who is the tougher candidate for the Democrats to defeat? The, the, we'll just say whomever the Democratic nominee might be. Who is the tougher general election candidate? Brian Kemp, who may not have much support from Donald Trump, or David Perdue, who wouldn't have the incumbency title? That's that's a tough question. Uh, Catherine, I think. I'm gonna ask you that first. Sorry, Catherine. I think that's a tough question. I think that's a tough question yeah. because um, I think David Perdue is just—he's just not very um, charismatic on the campaign trail. Um, you know, he sort of fades into the background. So I think he, as far as a candidate, he's not that good. But he would have, as we, we we can presume, he would have the you know support of Donald Trump, which in the general could 
would help him with the you know base of the Republican Party, but probably work against him uh, with the Democrats. And then Brian Kemp, um, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who really like him, but not the Trump base. So I think that I, I have a hard time picking which one's the easy, the better candidate for us yep. for the Democrats. Okay. Well, I have a strong opinion on it. I don't know if Tim does, but we're going to have to wait, and we're going to move north, um, I guess, uh, two states. At least we travel through 75 up to Virginia and uh, bring Lowell Fell back onto the show. Welcome, Lowell. Hey, how's it going? Uh, happy Halloween, or as our lieutenant governor candidate named Hala says, happy Halloween. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, Halloween. So, uh, yep. And your other go- lieutenant governor uh, candidate plays dress up, and I've got a question about that later. <laughs> and Lowell, I want to tell you, um, I I've got some kind of more specific questions, so I think I'm going to uh, take a chance. We didn't get our show prep quite as um, properly because of Halloween and all the busy things, and so I'm going to pass it to Catherine first off, and then maybe come back after Catherine and Tim. Catherine? All right. So this is going to be the treat part, then the trick, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, Got it. It's so great to have you on the show, Lowell. I've been thinking about you a lot watching the Virginia race. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk to you, like, right before the election. Yeah, um, good timing. I have a, yeah, I have a question. It, it might be kind of um, harsh for Terry McAuliffe. Um, do you think that uh, – I mean – I'm pretty optimistic about this election, but there has been a lot of, um, it seems like, a lot of back and forth and some concern about the results. Do you think it would have been uh, wiser to pick a more, a a fresher candidate, like a new candidate that that hadn't been elected before? Do you think that would have um, been a little easier to sell than what I Mm -hmm hesitate to call a retread i'm I'm not i'm not trying to be critical of terry mcauliffe i just think sometimes people are like oh this guy again or you know Mm -hmm. can't we get somebody younger and more um you know progressive or whatever whatever the word is what do you think about that yeah i think there's something too i think you know all the candidates who ran in our democratic primary for governor had advantages and disadvantages i mean terry is a, quote, retread, okay, but he also has a four-year record as governor, pretty successful. I mean, he would argue very successful record. Now, he did have a Republican legislature for the four years he was governor, so there was that. But anyway, um, he also can raise a lot of money, which is helpful when you're running against a guy. The Republican nominee for Governor Glenn Youngkin is worth, I don't know, $400 million. I'm not exactly sure, but, you know, he worked for the Carlisle Group and made a fortune. So when you're running against someone like that, it does help to be able to raise, you know, more money than God, I guess, and Terry McAuliffe can do that. So that's an advantage. Now, on the other hand, maybe having a younger, maybe a woman of color, and we had a couple of them running in our primary back in June, and, you know, Terry McAuliffe won easily. I mean, he won with like 60% of the vote against, you know, uh, four four other candidates. So he, you know, it's really hard to say. I mean... At this point, it's moot. He's the nominee. I mean, and that's it. The election's in, you know, not even uh, polls open in like 36 hours or whatever it is. And, or not even. And um, 
And so, but yeah, it's really hard to say. I mean, um, I think they all brought advantages and disadvantages. Terry has a lot of experience. He has some of the other ones. I mean, I think, you know, the, yeah, like Jennifer McClellan, one of the candidates in the spring, she was somewhat similar to Terry in the sense that they're both kind of, you could say, centrist or corporate or whatever. But she's an African-American woman, so that would have been inspiring for people. But she didn't do very well. She finished third in the primary. And um, it, it's just really it's, it's really hard to say. I'm not trying to, like, avoid your question. I just don't know the answer. Um, like which candidate. Yeah, I, no, I, I mean, yeah. none of us know the answer. I was just wondering about your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a no retread person. I just get really tired of the same candidates running, and I know that in, um, that sometimes it, it depresses my enthusiasm about a candidate when I'm like, oh, yeah. this guy again, you know. Um, yeah, I, but and there I might mean, be some of really that. Point. He didn't. He, he prevailed in the primary, so obviously there were. There was mm-hmm. support for him. I mean, that's a really good point. Um, right. There might, there might be some of that, but I do, I do think Democrats are showing up. I mean, we can get to this, but the early vote numbers are, are very strong. So even if they're not super enthused, let's just posit that they're not super enthused about Terry McAuliffe. They are super enthused about not having a Donald Trump um, endorsed eight times or whatever now candidate. Trump's doing a rally for him tomorrow, a virtual rally for this guy tomorrow night, Glenn Youngkin. I think their Democrats are very enthused about stopping that. <laughs> and well, I think Democrats are also <laughs> enthused. To, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So and I also think Democrats are super enthused about keeping the progress we've seen the last couple of years. Democrats have been in charge, full charge of Virginia the last two years. We have a, the trifecta, the governor's mansion the House of Delegates, and the State Senate. So we've passed hundreds of pieces of legislation, progressive, on every topic imaginable, from women's right to choose, LGBT equality, you know, labor, $15 minimum wage, climate, the Virginia clean economy. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. I mean, so much stuff. Oh, voting rights, of course. You know, um, and so I think Democrats want to keep that going. So there's a lot to be enthused about besides, aside from the candidate per se. Um, so, you know, uh-huh. I, I, so I, anyway, so yeah, we've seen early voting numbers pretty high so far. So that, that's encouraging. And how about the, how about COVID? How are people responding to like mask and any vaccination mandates? How's that going in Virginia? I mean, you know, it's interesting. Um, that's a really interesting point. You know, COVID was a huge issue until it wasn't <laughs> like a couple months ago i feel like it just disappeared i mean like i don't feel like in this campaign anyone's talking about covid much at this point hardly at all uh in the polls when you ask voters what their top issues are they're like education the economy this that the other thing i mean like a few months ago even i feel like it was really covid was like right at the top I, I mean, it's weird. So, I mean, no question, um, the Democrats and Republicans are campaigning differently. I mean, the Democrats generally seem to be adhering to mask protocols when they're indoors. They're most doing a lot of outdoor rallies. The Republicans are like, hey, screw it, basically. <laughs> like, <laughs> Republicans yeah. are like, COVID, who, who cares? You know, like just they have indoor stuff, events. They're packed. Nobody's wearing a mask. They're like standing right cheek to jowl or whatever. I don't care. 
<laughs> so they have that. But like, and and you know, so you see these big Republican rallies, and I wonder how much of that is because they just don't care about COVID. I mean, but some of it, they no no question, there's Republican enthusiasm. I don't want to underestimate that at all. Like there, there is. They're they're fired up, and it's for a lot of bad reasons. I would argue it's like the um, Republican campaign this year, and it would be a model if it works for next year. I think too is to get people riled up. I mean, this is the Republican playbook about um, race, so critical race theory, something nobody probably ever heard of. You know, all the, they're using that as a proxy for basically teaching about the history of. Anything in American history that reflects badly on, frankly, white people. Um, so, you know, slavery, lynchings, Jim Crow, whatever. They, don't, they just don't want to teach that because nobody knows what critical race theory is. It just sounds bad if you're like, you know, don't want to have anything taught about race, you know, in, to your children. So, so they're doing that. And then transgender, you know, like pronouns and transgender kids in bathrooms and locker rooms and stuff. They're playing on fears and anxieties and prejudices, really. And um, it's, uh, but, it, but it gets people riled up, and riled up people vote. So that's uh, kind of where we're at right now. It's just, I mean, I, it's really exasperating. And, you know, just one thing before yeah. I forget. I mean, the media, to me, their job is to say what is true and what is not true, but they don't do that. They just like report, and then Republican candidate X said this, but they don't say, and of course that is completely false. <laughs> so they're basically well, aiding and abetting the Republicans, you know. That's always anyway, that's my, my uh, little tirade my, on the media. When I, when I listen to yeah. the news, I'm always like, okay, ask the next question. <laughs> like, right, I mean, follow up. They say that. <laughs> well, okay, great. Thanks so, so much, Lowell. I'm going to pass it to Tim. And then he'll oh, sure, get back sure. to David. Thanks right, so thanks. much. Uh-huh. Uh, good evening, Lowell. Thank you for being hey. uh, with us tonight. Uh, you, you did mention the media coverage of it. And, you know, those of us not in Virginia depend on basically media coverage along with, you know, some things we can glean from folks like you about what's going on on the ground. But mm-hmm. from my seat, it would seem that Youngkin is on offense in the close of this campaign, and McAuliffe is playing defense. Is mm-hmm. that a fair assessment? Um, I think there's some truth to that. I definitely think uh, Youngkin's on offense against um, some of the things I mentioned earlier. Terry McAuliffe in the last, they only had two debates, televised debates, and in the last debate, Terry McAuliffe, uh, you know, um, he he was asked a question about schools and about um, basically it got it was it was about a bill. It was this beloved bill, Tony Morrison's book, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Beloved was there was a bill to basically kind of would ban books like that from schools because they contained sensitive t- content. And in the debate, Terry McAuliffe said basically that parents should not be deciding what kids are taught in schools. So the Youngkin campaign pounced on that and for the last few weeks have been pounding Terry that he doesn't think parents should be involved in their kids' schooling. And that's not what Terry said, of course. He's talking specific, he was talking specifically about that bill, the beloved bill. So now the Repo- so, so, so I would say, yes, Terry McCall's been on defensive in that regard. 
But then the Democrats have fired back because Youngkin kind of overstepped and has an ad where they have this woman who talks about how her son was traumatized by having to read Beloved, Beloved in mm-hmm. school. And anyway, this son now, by the way, he worked for Trump. He's now a lawyer with the National Republican Campaign Committee. He's so traumatized, he ended up as a top-ranking Republican. <laughs> I just love that one. Huh. But anyway, so, so the McAuliffe campaign went on the offensive against that. So it's like Republicans sort of overreached on it. So, mm-hmm. you know – but Youngkin's a challenger, so he's he's on the offensive in the sense that he's going after the de facto incumbent and criticizing everything that McAuliffe did or did not do uh, as governor. So um, McAuliffe yeah. has a record. Youngkin does not have any record. He's never been elected to anything other than his uh, record in business. He has no record. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of asymmetrical warfare in that respect because – when you have someone who actually governed, you know, you can go after stuff. And, but, and again, I mentioned this earlier, McAuliffe, when he was governor, he had a legislature. The House of Delegates, when McAuliffe was governor, was two to one Republican. So when they criticize McAuliffe for the things that he didn't do as governor, it drives me insane because it's like you had a two to one Republican majority in the House of Delegates. They weren't going to give Terry anything. They, they said that. They're not giving him anything. Just like remember when McConnell said yeah. we're going to make Obama fail? Mm-hmm. That, and that's what happened. He just wasn't mm-hmm. going to give Obama anything. So how can you blame Obama for that? And But anyway, it's just – it, mm-hmm. it drives me nuts. So, so. so, so, so the, the, the next thing is that we, we know that Northam won by nine points. Right. We know that Joe Biden carried the state last year by ten. Right. And mm-hmm. there's pretty much universal agreement that even though McAuliffe might win, he, he's not going to win by those amounts, unless the polling is terribly wrong, which, of course, right. certainly could happen considering <laughs> recent history. So he has anything other than a comfortable win. If there's any result other than a comfortable win for McAuliffe on Tuesday night, should we read anything national into those results you know, uh, you can read anything you want and say anything, I suppose. But, you know, like uh, the fact is Biden's approval rating at the beginning of this campaign was a lot higher than it is today. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. fallen, you know, significantly over the summer. You can argue why it has and whether it should have or whatever, but it has. I mean, would Terry McAuliffe be better off if Biden was now at 55, 45 or whatever than 45, 55 or whatever he is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's you can read. So I think, you know, some people are going to play this as a referendum on Joe Biden. And I'm sure the Republicans and a lot of the media are going to say, hey, Joe Biden's presidency is a disaster, blah, blah, blah. You know, and um, the other thing is, of course, they, the Democrats haven't passed the Build Back Better agenda in Congress yet. And it's just dragged on and on. I mean, I, I was hoping it would be passed before this election and would give Terry mm-hmm. McAuliffe somewhat of a boost. And maybe Biden somewhat of a boost, you know, and, and everybody, all Democrats somewhat of a boost, but they still have, they're talking about a vote maybe on Tuesday. Well, that's a little late. Our election's on Tuesday. <laughs> like, great, you're going to have a, maybe have a vote on Tuesday. It's too late. So uh-huh. you can read into Biden's approval rating and you can read into the failure to, as of yet, to pass the Build Back Better agenda. And really just watching the sausage making for the last few months, the proverbial sausage making of this legislation and it getting whittled down from 
whatever Bernie, what did he have it at? Six trillion was three point five mm-hmm. trillion. Whatever it is now, now it's one point seven five trillion. You know, so um, I think you know a lot of Democrats are, a lot of people are probably frustrated. You could read. I think that's fair. And and mm-hmm. the other thing is Virginia has always. This is the standard thing when a new uh, party comes into the White House. When the, when the White House switches parties, then Virginia the next year always has a governor's election, and it usually swings the opposite direction. So when Obama mm-hmm. won in 2008 and carried Virginia by six points, the next year, 2009, Bob McDonnell, Ken Cuccinelli, and I mean Bill Bowling and Ken Cuccinelli annihilated the Democrats in Virginia. And mm-hmm. then the next year, 2010, was the Tea Party wipeout of the Democrats nationally. So... You know, like, but anyway, in Virginia, it seems like the next year after a Democrat comes into the White House, or the year after Trump came into the White House, 2017, we romped in Virginia. We picked up 15 seats in the House of Delegates. We swept the three statewide races. So Terry's battling that. You know, the last time Terry ran was in 2013. That was after Obama was reelected. And Terry only won by 2.5 points over Ken Cuccinelli, uh, who's really an extremist, um, only 2.5 point win there. So, and there was a third party candidate in that race too, a libertarian candidate who got several points. So, you know, this is probably going to be a nail biter. It's just, um, I don't, Mm -hmm. and Virginia elections usually are close, except there have been, I think, I mean, obviously the uh, Northam uh, win Four years ago was an exception, and the um, and then the, the McDonald one I mentioned in 2009 was an exception. But you know, a lot of times these races are very close, so I, I'm expecting this to, to be close within a few will points. Will we will we know the result on election night? Um, I think so, but if it's close, if it's really really close, I mean. Maybe not. I mean, you can get if you get your ballot in. I guess your mail ballot has to arrive by 7 p.m. on election day. So I guess there won't be ballots trickling in after that. So yeah, I mean, unless it goes to a recount, unless it's so close that it's like triggers a recount or whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess we will. It might be late. Um, All right, night, so I but, get the popcorn and set up with the coffee pot down here in Georgia. Huh? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think that's what we're talking about. Oh well, yeah. in that Settle case, in for a I'm long gonna, evening. All right, in that case, I'm going to send it back over to David. Thank you, Lowell. Cool, absolutely. Yes, well, Lowell, I know that you're. Um, I guess all are certainly a lot of the House of Delegates and the State Senate seats are also up for uh, election Tuesday, correct? Uh, House of Delegates, yes, not State Senate. Um, yeah, state Senate's in two more years. They're, they're for four-year terms, so it's staggered. But every House of Delegates yeah. seat is up, yeah, all 100. Well, that, that that's my question. Do you How much do you think – that the election for governor and I guess in turn lieutenant governor and attorney general will coincide with the House of Delegates. And what I mean by that is if Glenn Youngkin were to win, will the Republicans likely either tie up or take back the House of Delegates? Or if Terry McAuliffe wins, the Democrats would then hold it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think the way it is these days, uh, I don't think there's too much ticket splitting. We'll see, but I think the country's quote-unquote polarized, whatever you want to call it. But, I mean, I think people are locked in. If you're a Democrat, you're blue. You're voting blue all the way up and down the ballot, I think. If you're voting red, you're voting red up and down the ballot pretty much. It's hard to imagine a bunch of, like, people who would vote for Yunkin and then vote for a Democrat for a House of Delegates. They might, they might, they might be a few. In general, I feel like the districts Terry wins, most likely the Democratic House of Delegates candidate will win, and the districts Terry loses, they'll lose. Um, so I think if Terry loses the election, if he loses it by like a point one points or something like that, I don't know. It could be very, you know, it could be really close. Democrats have a fifty-five forty-five majority right now in the House of Delegates. Um, so we can lose four. Five would get to a tie. I don't want to lose any, but I'm just saying that's how many we can lose. And, um, you know, so I think if Terry wins, we should be fine. Even if he wins by a point or two, I think we'll be fine. Some of these will be close. I mean, some of these districts could be within 100 votes or something. It's just impossible to call that. You know, to predict that. Yeah, right? I just you know, know from the, you know the the uh, national election, we lost ground in the House of Representatives, even though you know Joe, Joe Biden won several million more votes, um, you know, nationally. Right. And so I didn't know if the, well, that, the construction yeah. was the same. Well, now let me get into the governor's race. Um, this past week, I, and, and ongoing, I've seen you know the media on Glenn Youngkin and just talking about how he's you know critical race theory and, and, and things mm-hmm. that are real, you know, more outside the Virginia mainstream. But then I watched this campaign commercial that a crook media um, had put on, or that they had shown the commercial, it wasn't their commercial, but they were, it was campaign um, experts react. And it was um, Dan Pfeiffer and his guest was the political reporter from Snapchat or snap. Uh, mm-hmm. And they looked at this ad and it was an ad that, was shown talking about the grocery tax. Glenn Youngkin and apparently mm. Terry McAuliffe both support taking the tax off of groceries, but Youngkin has made it, I guess, more of a centerpiece of his campaign. It showed a different side of Youngkin that I've seen, I guess, in the Twitter sphere, um, you know, more of the national media covering this race. Um, and it, do you think that's the image that maybe more Virginians are getting that just watch TV? And that may be why the race looks different in the polling than we might expect. Yeah, I think you know most people consume probably their in, the information they get about, and it's kind of sad, but uh, politics is a lot of it's through TV in general, and a lot of it's through TV advertising. And Youngkin is presenting himself as different things to different audiences for sure. I, he's, Youngkin's trying to, uh, basically, he's trying to thread this needle right now. He's trying to keep the Republic, the Trump, uh, Trumpist, whatever you want to call it, base, the hardcore Trumpist base, enthused and engaged and really fired up so they'll turn out in big numbers. But he's also trying to win over suburban, exurban, whatever you want to call them, um, quote-unquote moderates who could swing you know, and I think Democrats won over when Trump was in the White House. They, a lot of women, particularly, went Democratic. But are they, are they now Democrats, or could they swing 
back to someone like Youngkin, who on TV seems to present a relatively friendly, moderate, not a snarling, angry, bigoted face there. But then in, if you look at some of the literature they're sending out, some of the mailers they're sending out, nasty, really hard-hitting, just ugly stuff. It, but that's targeted you know, to to the people they want to target it to. And so probably their voters, you know, are getting that. Um, and then if you look at, you know, uh, some of his surrogates are hard right, like insurrectionist type, like Amanda Chase, state senator, who was at the January 6th insurrection. Another one, John McGuire, a delegate, was at the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. And he had some marks on his face like he was in a fight or something. I don't know what happened there, but it was weird. He had pictures put up there. So that's a surrogate for Glenn Youngkin. So he's, so he, so Youngkin's playing like all these sides. So yeah, if you just watch TV and you see the ads, probably seems like a reasonable moderate Republican. Soccer dad, basketball dad, whatever he is. Um, but if you get the mailers, if you watch his surrogate speak to at events, let's say in, I don't know, Red, Virginia, far southwest Virginia. You go to an event and Amanda Chase is the surrogate. You're going to get the hardcore Trumpist messaging. So he's trying to, he's trying to get every, you know, the whole coalition to turn out. And it's a tricky balancing act. If he pulls it off, you know, it's, a, it's, it's impressive in a way. It's horrifying, but it's also impressive just that he could pull that off. Now, he's got a lot of money, so he can afford to send out 20 million mailers, put up 20 million TV ads, target on digital, whatever he needs to do, he can just do it. And, uh, you know, I, I think if he didn't have that money, it would be a lot harder. But, and then Trump's doing a rally a virtual rally tomorrow night, election eve rally for Yunkin. So Trump's clearly angling to either take credit, I guess, if Yunkin wins, and then if Yunkin loses, he'll figure out some way to blame Yunkin, you know. But um, and I don't think Yunkin wanted Trump to do this because I think he sees it as dangerous. Uh, I mean, it could turn out more that it's Trump based but it could also turn out more of the Democratic base the next day. So that's, that's, that's the tricky game that Youngkin's playing. He's trying to straddle these different wings or whatever you want to call them, I guess, of the Republican coalition and bring in some independent, ex-urban, suburban voters and cobble together a coalition. Because the bottom line of it, there's more, there are more Democrats in Virginia. Um, you know, and, and, and if turnout's really high, which it looks like it could be, could be over three million, um, it's gonna be hard for Yunkin. I mean he you know, he's got a I mean, the early voting was impressive in places like Fairfax County, which is deep blue, northern Virginia, uh Arlington County where where I live, deep, deep blue, eighty percent Biden County, very strong early voting. Um, Loudoun, Prince William County, also northern Virginia, big democratic stronghold. So I mean, there was there was some strong uh, early voting for Republicans too, but um, you know where early voting was very slow was in far southwest Virginia, and was kind of dead. So, are they all going to show up on Tuesday, or yeah, what? Well, well, like, and, speaking of areas, because this to me is a real key, how was it in the Hampton Roads Tidewater area? 
Uh, somewhat mixed. I mean, you see in some parts of there, there's some like hot delegates races, and you see higher turnout there where both sides are turning out. In Norfolk, um, turnout's a little sluggish, and that's a little worrisome because that's a heavy Democratic area. It's um, a lot of African-American. Um, so African-American turnout seems to be a little – the early voting was is a little down. Um, but there's some other signs that um, Democratic you know, turnout is very strong. It's a, it, there's sort of mixed signs, but one of the worrisome areas is uh, in the Hampton Roads area is Norfolk particularly. Um, and then yeah. Richmond, to some extent, has it picked up the last couple days of the early voting because early voting ended yesterday, and uh, but it started off really slowly. But you know, it's um, somewhat reading tea leaves at this point. But they're um, yeah. I mean, other, Virginia Beach has been strong, but that's a purple. That's a swingy. I mean, that, that's not a blue or red city. It's a huge city one of the largest jurisdictions in Virginia. Um, Prince William County, Big Blue County, looks strong. Loudoun, Fairfax, Arlington, Alexandria. I, I'm, you know, yeah, I mean, and it's, so it's, um, but there's a strong, like Hanover County is a big red county, and that, it's not as big as, not even close to Fairfax County size, but it, it turned out strong there, too. Um, yeah. it, you know, we're really, I, I think we're going to have to see what happens on Election Day, and by the you might even see it in the morning if you see like like huge uh voting uh intensity down in like far southwest Virginia, then watch out. but if you see them not showing up down there like the trump base, then I'm gonna feel much better and i I want to see strong yeah. turnout in Arlington later this time I heard too. Well, let me ask you another question about the governor's race, and it's kind of in general about just issue polling. You know, the polling's as far as the horse race number has been all over, and polling is so hard to understand exactly where they're placing their voter screen, how educated mm-hmm. their white voters may be. That's always a big mm-hmm. question. But one number that did concern me is that um, a poll I saw, I think it was actually two polls, that it showed that Glenn Youngkin and the Republicans had a lead among voters, and one as high as 15% on the question of who do you trust more to handle Virginia K-12 education? A mm-hmm. 15-point lead. In my understanding, if a Republican is winning the education question, then Democrats aren't doing good. Is that, A, a bad number, which is very possible, or, B, do you think there could have been truth to that number, and what does that mean? I think it's probably a bad number. I don't want to be Pollyannish here. I, the um, Washington Post poll didn't show that. The Washington Post poll showed them basically like tied on education, which honestly that's bad enough because um, Terry McAuliffe kicked off his whole campaign in front of a school in Richmond and was going to make education the centerpiece of centerpiece of his campaign, and yet Youngkins fought him to at least a draw on education. So that's kind of a, a, a loss there in a way. I mean, McAuliffe should be dominating. That I don't think I think the number you're talking about maybe was from the Fox poll or I'm not sure, but the, um, so I'm not sure I trust. That was, a, that was a funky poll, that last Fox poll. I don't know what to make of that one, but I, I'm going to assume they're about tied on education and I think um, that's a problem. I think Democrats should dominate on education and I think Youngkin I like a lot of times what Republicans do is they try to take your strength and turn it into a weakness. 
And in that case, maybe they didn't succeed in turning it into a weakness, but it's, they sort of neutralized it. And um, that's unfortunate because that should have been an absolute strength for the Democrats. Education? Come on. Like, really? That Republicans have credibility on education? Like, since when, you know? But uh, I think part of it was, well, like I talked about earlier, McAuliffe saying – Talking about the beloved bill and saying it in a way that sounded like he might be dismissive, I don't think he was, but of parents being involved in their kids' education. I think he was just saying parents shouldn't be able to say, take these books out of our school. Like like, like if there's a history book that teaches about race or whatever that teaches about, and parents like, I don't like that. Get it out of there. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, the answer should be no. We're not getting the history book out just because you're uncomfortable hearing about, you know, the, that one of the causes of the Civil War, a major cause, was slavery. Like, that's I think that's what Terry was getting at. But unfortunately, the way it was played and and the Young campaign pounced on it, and they had the money to do it. And uh, I don't think the McAuliffe campaign necessarily responded as adroitly as trying to be diplomatic here as they as they could have uh you know i i would have been more aggressive about it uh but anyway whatever that's water under the bridge now um so i don't know if that answers the question really i mean it's um somewhat uh, difficult to know for sure what's going on and the polls are all over the place somewhat Especially when you get into yeah, just, the internal. That, that particular issue number was concerning. I mean, sometimes with the way polling is, top lines can be tricky. But when you go underneath and find numbers, you can see uh, mm-hmm. something that you can gather from more. And that's one number I touched to. Now, let's talk about the lieutenant governor's race. Uh, you mentioned the Democratic candidate. I wanted to ask about the Republican candidate. Um, I had mm-hmm. not heard anything about her, and it's been several weeks ago, maybe even months. I saw a picture in which she has on, you know, business clothing, um, you know, a blouse and a skirt that looks mm-hmm. like you would go to work in, to work in an office job. I mean, looked you know, dressed very nicely, and she's mm-hmm. holding an assault rifle. Right, um, a huge one. I'm not sure exactly what the exact uniform is for um, using an assault uh-huh. rifle. But that didn't look like it. Um, so this picture, and this is the only impression I have of her at this point, is this jarring photo. Tell us a little bit about this um, Winsome Sears, the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor. I mean, yeah, she she was elected to the House of Delegates. I think it was – this was before I got involved with Virginia politics, but back in 2001 by a pretty narrow margin um, – down in uh, the Hampton Roads area. She, um, uh, I don't know how she won that election because I really wasn't involved back then, but I've heard that it was like kind of fluky. Maybe the Democratic candidate was flawed in some way, whatever. But anyway, she served one term and then she didn't, I think she just didn't run again. And then, and then she ran for Congress in 2004 against Bobby Scott and she got annihilated with 69, 31%. And that was basically it, 2004. And then she just reappeared running for lieutenant governor this time after 17 years of being kind of out of Virginia politics. I mean, I never, she never was in, did anything politically that I was aware of. And I've been pretty involved in this stuff. And then all of a sudden she popped up and, you know, they had this funky, the Republicans had this funky nominating process with, um, uh, 
ranked choice voting and multiple rounds, and uh, they had a uh, you know this this weird convention which was all over the state and it was virtual because of COVID. And, well, anyway, somehow and so there were a bunch of candidates, a bunch of far right candidates, and she's a far right person for sure. And uh, but she she came out on top, not by a huge amount or anything, but she won the nomination. And um, but yeah, she's hard right on everything. She's totally anti-abortion, hundred percent. She's totally 100% pro-gun. She's uh, get very hostile to public education. She's all big time on charter schools and, you know, uh, private privatizing everything, whatever. Um, she is um, trying to think any, any any area she's moderate on. I mean, not not really, but you know, it's been overshadowed. That race has been overshadowed by the governor's race. Governor's race has spent it's going to be like 120 million dollars. And the LG race is like a few million, like single digits million. So it's all the talk's been about the governor's race pretty much. Um, the LG and AG races have been unfortunately largely overshadowed. Oh, another thing is they never did a debate. There was never a lieutenant governor televised debate. I'm not sure exactly well, why that is. If it was, I it would, you know, either both candidates didn't want to do it or just Sears didn't want to do it or whatever, but they never had a debate. You know, well, let me on, ask on you the, uh, kind yeah. of a final get-out question where we can wrap it all up. Is there a scenario in which um, the governor's race and the lieutenant and or um, attorney general races split and you have a two-and-one mm-hmm. or one-and-two between the parties? Yeah, I mean, we've had it before. I mean, when I first start, got involved with Virginia politics, seems like an you know, ancient history, 2005, Tim Kaine won for governor. Uh, Democrat, and then the Republicans won for lieutenant governor by one point, and um, Kane won by like five points for governor, and then lieutenant governor, Republicans won by one point, and the AG was a recount, actually, it was so close, but the Republicans ended up winning. That guy was named Bob McDonald, you might remember. He won the AG race in a recount in 2005. Yeah, it happens, you know, um, where... Yeah, you could. I mean, I just, I just wonder if the, if the things have changed since then where it's even more polarized and where there's less ticket splitting and whatever. But sure, I mean, if it's within like a half a percentage point or whatever, let's say Terry loses by a half a percent, it's possible he could lose, but that Ayala and Herring could win and we barely hold the House of Delegates or it's 50-50 or when things get that close, it's it's just too hard to to predict, to know what's how it's gonna. So it's a few hundred votes it could be, you know, or a, you know, less than point one percent or whatever. You know, you're talking about margin of error. So yeah, it's possible. <laughs> yes, okay. it, could be, well, uh, it could be a long night and a and a and a wild night. Well, that's what we're gonna leave it with. If people want to follow between now and election day, and then through election day, even into the wrap-up period, uh, how can they read um, your blog or follow you on social media? Just give our listeners all those sources. Yeah, I mean the blog, the uh, URL, the address is blueVirginia.us. The Twitter account is at blueVirginia. Um, and also on Facebook, it's Blue Virginia. Um, we're really original here. <laughs> Think of all different names for these things. But, yeah, so just um, that's, that's pretty much it. If you can remember Blue Virginia, you can pretty much find us. Um, you know. Well, good you deal. Can't, well, we'll I can't help you. We'll be watching Virginia 
you know, on Tuesday because I think for, for right or wrong, all the attention's more on Virginia and less on New Jersey. But Lowell, thanks again for joining us on the Kudzu Vine. Yeah, thanks for inviting thanks, me Lowell. and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Thank you, sir. Yeah. All right. Take yes. care. You, you too. too. Lowell Field of Blue Virginia. Um, so now we just have, I don't know if we have a few minutes. We're just going to take a few minutes and give our predict, predictions for uh, at least three races. We're going to stick and move quickly. Um, let's start off, since Lowell's given us all this Virginia information, uh, you can stick just to the top line, or you can go deeper into the um, uh, down ballot, right, two down ballot races. Um, Catherine, who wins in Virginia? Terry McAuliffe pulls it off, but only by, you know, a couple of points. Okay, Tim. Youngkin. Okay, I'm going to say that Democrats win all three. I think the polling's a little off. I do think that that Hampton Roads area, their turnout is really key. And if I were the Democrats in Virginia, I would be spending all of my energy between now and the close of polls turning out votes in Norfolk, um, Newport News, all that area um, where it looks like the, the a lot of the uh, harder to turn out vote is. Let's move to New Jersey. Um, we hadn't talked a lot about Phil Murphy's reelection campaign, and we've seen some polling. Uh, Tim, uh, who do you like in that New Jersey governor's race? Well, the la- la- latest poll of likely voters has the governor up 50 to 41. I, I think that uh, – since registered Democrats outnumber registered Republicans by over one million, that uh, he will be the first Democrat to win re-election since 1977 in that state. That is quite a stat. Catherine? Yep. I I agree with Tim. I think it's going to be a historical night in Pennsylvania. And I'll go three for three. Uh, Bill Murphy reelected in the um, state of New Jersey for governor. Now let's go to Atlanta. Now I don't think we're just going to have one name here necessarily. Uh, we'll just do the mayoral race um, since we're limited on time. Catherine is the Atlanta resident of the um, show. Tell us what you think. I think it's going to be uh... – Felicia Moore and Kasim Reed in a runoff. I think Felicia Moore is going to going to take more than Kasim Reed, but it's going to be very tight, and we'll have a runoff. Okay, Tim. I am with Catherine one hundred percent, and and I agree. I think it's going to be Felicia Moore and Kasim Reed in the runoff. A month ago, I probably would have said Kasim Reed would have had more um, support in the first round but not get 50%. I'm not so sure if he's not the second-place finisher um, Mm -hmm. on the first round of voting on Tuesday. So next week, uh, we'll come back. We'll see how correct or incorrect we were with our predictions. I have to think we're going to discuss Virginia for sure, possibly Atlanta, unless something dramatic happens i don't think new jersey makes the show again and then we'll um cover all the rest of the things in the world of politics including uh jason stafford who was planning on joining us a few weeks ago he will be on next week
to discuss his book, Forget the Alamo. Until then, it's been the Cozy Vine. Night, everybody. Good night. Good night, y'all. Happy We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest.